Okay, that was really sad. Good morning, Loma! All right, Westmont's still better. Just, I'm just kidding. Okay. All right, so as introduced, I'm Sandy Richter. You can think of me as the Brad Kelly counterpart at Westmont College. Um, he's taller, I'm cuter. Um, it really did take a village to get me here today, so I would like to offer thanks to Professor Rick Kennedy for thinking up the idea in the first place. Um, the Science and Theology Discussion Group. Cheer anyway, go for it. Um, Chaplain Trujillo and his team for clearing the chapel schedule. Come on, come on, come on. And Ali Gilmeister, who I haven't met yet, but I know you're here somewhere, from the sustainability department uh, for our gathering later today. I really am honored to be here, and it is so much fun to get to see all of your faces, a lot of whom um, I already know. So, our topic for today is, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood topics of social justice and holiness within the Christian community, environmental stewardship. It is obviously an important topic, a relevant topic, a contemporary topic. It's a topic that our neighbors, both locally and globally, care about deeply. But as I have traveled and written and spoken on this topic for more than a decade, I have found that the church is largely paralyzed on this topic. So the question we want to ask this morning is why? And we also want to answer that question. But before we do, Noel made me promise there would be no baby pictures. So I said, how about toddler pictures? <laughs> Don't you think that that's kind of a fair trade-off? And somewhere on the ground is the pink trowel that she dug at Tel Rehove with. She was just a rock star. Okay, um, so here we go. Why has the church, the historical moral compass of our society, gotten so lost on this issue? Well, one reason is definitely politics, and, and specifically American politics. Uh, when you go to the UK, it's not the same situation. It is clear that the traditional political allies of the church are not the traditional political allies of environmental concern. So if you are pro-life, supposedly you cannot also be pro-environment. And if you're a patriot, supposedly you cannot also be a conservationist. So if you're a Christian, supposedly you can't be an environmentalist. So when I was at Wheaton College a number of years ago and Professor Kristen Page of the biology department and I launched the first ever cross-listed Bible and biology environmentalism course at Wheaton College, we did that getting to know you thing, you know, the icebreaker, where your professor asks you to go around in a circle and tell us who you are, what your major is, and why you decided to take this class. Don't you hate that exercise? Go ahead. You can give the feedback. We understand. Okay, so as we went around the room, 25 students, 25 morally-minded, forward-thinking, theologically-informed Wheaties, said the exact same thing. I grew up camping in the national park, sailing on the Chesapeake Bay, climbing in Red River Canyon, and I've always felt God's presence and pleasure in those spaces. But I didn't know that as a Christian, I was allowed to love and advocate for the gospel and for the planet. So I'm so glad you decided to offer this class. Every 
student. And when the circle came back around to the professor standing at the front of the classroom, we looked at each other and said, yeah, us too. Well, I'm here to disrupt the polarization a bit because, big surprise, the kingdom of God is not actually about American politics. Now is it? No, you and I are actually citizens of another kingdom. And there is only one set of politics that we should be constrained by. Okay, second issue that I believe the church is paralyzed regarding has to do with social justice in general. And that is that we, the Western elite, are largely sheltered from the impact of environmental degradation on the global community. We don't see it. We don't see how unregulated use of land and water by big business decimates the lives of the marginalized. Mountaintop removal, valley fill, coal mining is not in our front windows. We don't see the industrial waste dumped hourly into the Ganges River that is shutting down that entire river system. We don't see the island paradise of Madagascar where 90% deforestation, pause over that, 90% deforestation has left the marginalized without recourse. So we struggle to see the issue of creation care as an expression of care for the widow and the orphan. Third issue, and perhaps the most detrimental, is the theological belief embraced by far too many that it's all going to burn anyway. That the created order is destined only for destruction and therefore the assumption that it is ethically appropriate to use the Earth's resources as aggressively as possible to accomplish the one thing that really matters. Get out there and save souls and trash the planet while you're doing it. As a result, the church, particularly the evangelical wing of the church, has inadvertently dismissed the issue of environmental stewardship as peripheral or even alien to the concerns of the gospel. So I'm here to tell a different story as someone who passionately believes in the conversion of souls. And that different story is that the stewardship of this planet is not alien or peripheral to the message of the gospel. Rather, your rule of faith or praxis, your Bible, actually has a great deal to say about this topic. So let's begin at the beginning. Genesis chapter one, here God reveals his ideal plan for creation. He, the interdependence of the cosmos is laid out within a literary framework of a perfect week. You can see it, days one through seven. On the seventh day, God is enthroned above his creation. This communicates that the perfect balance of God's ideal design is dependent on the sovereignty of the creator. Are we doing okay so far, Dr. Kelly? Okay, I didn't hear no. All right, um, and in this perfect seven-day structure, be interested in the fact that on the sixth day, a human steward is enthroned under the creator, but over the creation. This is on purpose. This is all about who's in charge. So then God said, let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. I am one of those rare environmentalists who is not afraid of the dominion speak in the Old Testament because we rule as we've been ruled. 
Hmm. The point, whereas the outworking of God's ideal design is dependent on the sovereignty of the creator, so too it is dependent on the obedience of the creator's stewards, that would be us, who are commissioned to facilitate this plan by living our lives as a reflection of God's image. And what was the role of God's human stewards in this perfect plan? Well, Genesis 2.15 specifies, then Yahweh Elohim took the human and placed him, installed him into the Garden of Eden to tend it, la'uvda, and to defend it, la shumra. The message is very clear. The garden belongs to God, but humanity was given the privilege to rule and the responsibility to care for this garden under the sovereignty of their divine Lord. This was the ideal plan a world in which humanity would succeed in constructing human civilization by directing and harnessing the amazing resources of this planet under the wise direction of their creator. Here, there would always be enough. Pause over that. Here, progress would not require pollution. Here, expansion would not demand extinction. The privilege of the strong would not result in the deprivation of the weak. But we all know the story. Humanity rejected this perfect plan. We've got a better plan, thanks so much. And because of the authority of their God-given position within creation, our choice sent the entire cosmos into disarray. That perfect seven-day structure flipped upside down. Because of humanity, even creation was subjected to futility, literally to frustration, quote, unable to attain the purpose for which it was created. That's Romans 8, verse 20. Now, you and I, we regularly um, and readily recognize the results of Adam's choice when it comes to human relationships. No one has to tell us the violence, poverty, greed, unbelief are not the way things were supposed to be. And we readily recognize that as the redeemed community, we're supposed to stand boldly with the opposition. Yeah? We are supposed to stand against those societal norms. We know that. But rarely, it seems, do we reflect upon the impact of our rebellion on the garden. And rarely do we consider how the reality of redemption in our lives should be redirecting our attitude toward the same. So let's press on and consider Israel. Israel is really important because she stands as the first model of God's relationship with a landed uh, people of God, a landed citizenry in a fallen world. So like Adam and Eve, Israel was gifted with a good land, the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors is giving you. But also like Adam and Eve, God makes it perfectly clear that the promised land will never truly be theirs. In fact, the regular message of the Old Testament is that if Israel manages to keep the covenant, then the land of Israel will remain within their possession. But the land does not belong to them. It belongs to Yahweh. And if they fail to steward it properly, they will lose the land, which we all know they did. We call that the exile. Yeah? That's the, that loss of the land is a demonstration of God's continuing sovereignty over the land. Now, within this covenant structure, even the produce of the land, 
actually belongs to Yahweh. So Israel's commanded to reserve a portion of every harvest for the marginalized. So we read in Leviticus 23, when you reap the harvest of your land, you will not reap the corners of your field. The remnant of the harvest you will not gather, but you will leave what remains for the needy and the immigrant. Why? Because I'm Yahweh, you're God, don't ask again. If we had a week together, I could tell you all about the marginalized in Israel, who they were, how they got in the margins in the first place, and we could compare their need to that of those in eastern Kentucky, for example, who are being driven from their land and impoverished and poisoned by big business, who's getting rich off of mountaintop removal, valley fill, coal mining, or the family farmers of Punjab, India, who have been wiped out by the ill-gotten gains of the Green Revolution, commonly known as industrial agriculture, or the humble citizens of Madagascar, whose world used to look like this, now looks like this, and that can be quantified like this. But I don't have a week. So let me say that because human sin and its repercussions haven't changed much in the last 3,000 years, our creator actually made provision for the long-term productivity of his land, in part to protect the voiceless. And he made it very clear that I and you need to limit my access to the resources of this planet to make sure that the marginalized have what they need. So God commands in the book of Exodus, you will plant your land for six years and you'll gather in the harvest. But on the seventh year, you'll let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy among you may eat, and what are they, whatever they leave, the wild animals may eat. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. We know this as the Sabbath ordinance. In agricultural speak, this is allowing a field to lie fallow, unsown, no product for an entire growing season. Why? So that the soil might replenish itself and so that the pests that have moved in around your barley crop will move on to somebody else's field and, and their eggs will perish. Now, we know that uh, Israel was tempted to ignore this law in their quest for personal and economic security. In fact, we have very good evidence that they did ignore this law. But the law is there all the same. The point being, that in God's government, it was not okay for a populace to take everything that it could from the land. Rather, a populace was to take everything it needed from the land. Big difference. Israel was commanded to leave enough so that the land was able to replenish itself. Why? Well, Leviticus chimes in again. Because I am the Lord, says Yahweh, and the land is mine. Full stop. And I intend it to be as fertile for the next generation as it was for you. I have future generations to think about. In other words, in Israel, economic security, economic growth, and even national security, we can talk about that more later, were not a viable excuse for the abuse of the land, the wild, or the domestic creature, or the poor. Instead, Israel was commanded to honor the land as his property. Have you ever thought about it that way? Even when it cut into short-term profits. And in so doing, God gave Israel his oath that he would take care of them. What does this Sabbath ordinance teach us? Limited productivity. Hmm. Limited consumption. 
restraint as regards the use of resources. Guys, that is a very un-American ideal, and I challenge you to be cross-cultural, counter-cultural. Okay, um, so what are the creatures that Yahweh entrusted to Adam? Uh, Psalm 104 tells us that God rejoices in the beauty and the balance of his creation, that he's designed this planet so that his wild creatures will have the food, the water, the habitat they need, not only to survive, but to prosper. He is the one who sends forth the springs into the wadis. Between the mountains they flow. Why? To give drink to each of his wild creatures. It is Yahweh who sent out the wild donkey free that makes the eagle nest in the high country. That's the book of Job. But as any environmentalist would tell us, the single greatest cause of wild animal extinction is the reckless destruction of habitat and we in America are presently devouring two million acres a year, two million acres a year in the noble quest for urban sprawl and experiencing a species extinction rate of a thousand times the historical ratio. We're not doing real well with this. Tropical rainforest on this planet, 80,000 acres a day. Right here, 75 to 85% of Southern Californian historical wetlands are gone. Have you heard of La Cienega Boulevard in Los Angeles? Do you know that that was once the La Cienega wetland complex? 7,000 acres of wetlands that used to lie between Hollywood and Inglewood? We paved it. Guys, the fact that God des designed the wild animals' habitat so that they could survive and flourish should matter to us. Take a look at Deuteronomy 22. If you happen upon a bird's nest uh, along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother is sitting on the young one or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. Now this is before the domestication of the chicken. This is the only way you get scrambled eggs. Okay. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Guys, this is well before the Industrial Revolution, the discovery of the New World, gunpowder, or plastic. This is Deuteronomy, ancient Israel's constitution and bylaws. And here Israel is being instructed that if they kill off the wild creatures without a thought to their ability to replenish themselves, it will not be well with them in the land. I think the same might apply to us. What about the domestic beasts? Well, the Sabbath ordinance shows up again requiring a Sabbath rest for Israel's livestock. Deuteronomy 25.4 commands, do not muzzle the ox while he threshes the grain. And you thought Paul thought that up. Yeah, when he was talking about paying pastors. No, no, it actually comes out of my book, Deuteronomy. Um, what you might not know is the role of the ox in ancient Israel's economy. These are working animals. Uh, you don't eat them. They are way too expensive for that. Oxen, bovines, cattle, whatever you want to call them, these creatures supported their masters by plowing and harvesting the fields and then threshing the grain that came in from the fields. Now, in Israel's world, grain was the backbone of the food supply. And this was a subsistence economy, meaning that everyone was just barely making it. Now, there's this Israeli archaeologist, his name is Baruch Rosen. I think he has a few issues with OCD. 
Um, because he has actually figured out how many calories the average Israelite village needed to survive. That involves measuring every grain silo, every storage container, every agricultural field, but he's done it. And what he's figured out is that the average village in Israel experienced an annual shortfall of 15 million calories a year. So when you crunch the numbers, this translates into an annual 60-day hunger season. You sociologists, anthropologists, you know what a hunger season is. That time between when last year's harvest runs out and next year's harvest comes in. It's the hunger season. 60 days, every family, every year. And yet Deuteronomy commands this farmer, the hungry farmer, not to muzzle his ox while he threshes the grain. There's an article I published a number of years ago. Um, I worked with a couple of zooarchaeologists and a third-generation West Texas ranching family. Let's hear it for West Texas. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah, a little bit? Okay. Um, to figure out the historical weight of a working bovine and how much grain they could consume without foundering. That means getting sick. The answer was five to seven quarts of grain, as threshing could take several days, that's 21 quarts of grain. In other words, in an economy where every kilo counted, God commands the Israelite farmer to allow his beast the chance to enjoy his life and work, to eat freely during the harvest, even though the comfort of his beast would cut into that family's essential food supply. How would this Deuteronomic law reflect on the billions of animals that are currently serving us on America's factory farms. Um, for those of you who don't know, factory farming is the practice of raising livestock in confinement at high stocking density, where the farm operates essentially as a factory whose end product is protein units. Confined animals burn fewer calories. Their excrement is mass-managed and their fertility and gestation fully controlled. As regards America's most lucrative product, pigs, confinement has been distilled to an exact science. 2,230-pound animals per 7.5-foot square pen. Housed on metal-graded flooring in climate-controlled conditions, these animals are never actually exposed to the light of day. They are sustained in such crowded and often filthy working conditions that movement is difficult. Natural behavior is impossible, and antibiotics are an essential uh, part of their diet in order to control infection. Sows, typically a 500-pound animal, are separately housed. They live out their lives standing in 7-foot by 22-inch metal gestation crates, from which they are only released to give birth. Folks, 95% of the meat that comes to your grocery store comes from a factory farm. The farrowing crates in which these pigs are uh, transferred to allow for birth an additional 18 inches. These sows are artificially inseminated to deliver an average of eight litters, litters inflated beyond their natural carrying capacity by fertility drugs. Imprisoned in their crates, covered in dried blood and feces, Matthew Scully speaks of sores, tumors, ulcers, Pus pockets, bruises, swollen and fractured legs, everywhere, close quote, and describes an environment of utter despair. We will skip chickens and jump to Matthew Scully. 
Dominion, the power of man, the suffering of animals, the call to mercy. This expose graphically illustrates what's going on in the factory farm. And it also graphically illustrates what's happening to the family farmer as a result of the factory farm. All of these Old Testament laws that I'm sharing with you of land, tree, and creature communicate the same life principle. The land, its creatures, belong to God. They don't belong to us. And he expects his people to care for them. Let's jump to the New Testament. Yeah, this whole business about how it's all going to burn, right? And therefore, there is no environmental concern to be found in the New Covenant. Or worse, that the New Testament is actually opposed to the distraction of environmental concern. Doesn't Second Peter 3.10 say that the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up? And if the created order is bound only for destruction, then isn't it logical to use the Earth's resources as aggressively as possible? The capitalists would say, for the good of the economy. The evangelists would say, to bring as many souls as possible into the kingdom. Well, if it were true that the created order was bound only for destruction, then maybe yes. But a host of New Testament scholars, Gunton, Beale, Witherington, Moo, and Moo the Younger, all concur that when the New Testament language is read according to its intended Old Testament language, these images in Peter and Thessalonians are simply the standard Old Testament language of judgment, not annihilation. Transformation within continuity is what we're looking for. What kind of continuity? Well, according to Romans 8, verses 19 to 21, the continuity is a continuity of resurrection. You heard about this last week. For creation waits eagerly, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, frustrated, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its bondage to decay into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here what we see is that it is not only humanity that is waiting anxiously for the revealing of the sons of God, but for all the created order as well. The message here is that with the return of the last Adam, that's Jesus, creation itself will finally be freed from the chaos of Adam's rebellion. The curse will be lifted, the cosmos liberated, and God's ideal design for creation as detailed in Genesis 1 and described again in Revelation 21, this proper order of the seven days will be restored. Guys, this is where we're headed. And this planet around us is going to be resurrected right along with us. So here's the deal, team. Our job as the redeemed community is to live our lives as an expression of the good and perfect will of our God. Our job is to be conformed to his image, not try to change him into ours. Our job is to reflect the will of another kingdom in every step we take. What is God's will for creation? Yahweh Elohim took the human and put him into the Garden of Eden to tend it and to protect it. So should a Christian be an environmentalist? My answer, how could a son of Adam 
or a daughter of Eve, redeemed and transformed by the second Adam to live eternally in the resurrected cosmos, be anything else. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you.